Welcome to a new episode of Speed Change Repeat. On this episode, I sit down with Daniel Gebler. Daniel is the CTO of Picnic, which is the fastest growing Dutch scaler. Picnic is taking grocery shopping online. On this episode, we talk about what does it mean to be data-driven, the role of artificial intelligence in their industry, the boundaries of ethics, and the future of education. In the end, he shares some of his advice. Stay tuned and listen further. Okay, Daniel. So, good morning. Great being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And um, yeah, so we just, we, as we do it, so we're going to have an informal talk about what to expect tomorrow and uh, how should, let's say, young people around, how should they prepare themselves. And you're an interesting person with an interesting story indeed. And the project, especially with Picnic, could be very interesting to share. So why don't we start with a brief introduction of who you are, what got you to the point where you are right now, as well as... Uh, work that you're doing with Picnic. And um, and finally, we would maybe have a chat a bit about the global outlook and what are the things that are coming up that interest you or bother you. And and yeah, so... Sounds great. So Daniel, who are you? Just tell us a bit more about yourself. Cool. Uh, I'm Daniel, CTO of Picnic. Uh, and we have a very simple mission. We want to make the grocery shopping simple, fun and affordable. Right. So my story started a couple of years back, um, basically when we had another startup uh, called Fretopper which mm-hmm. was a uh, recommendation engine where we built basically a recommendation module. So this is basically the functionality that you see on a website. Users who bought that yeah. may also buy, buy that, or you mm-hmm. may like this, or other users uh, bought this. Uh, so this is a functionality that we built basically for uh, all the bigger e-commerce uh, players in uh, Europe and beyond. Mm-hmm. And we observed one uh, simple thing, um, basically... Everybody is comfortable already to buy uh, non-food items, so electronics, books, right. uh, fashion, and all kind of other uh, non-food items yeah. online, while nobody is currently, at least in a big uh, measure, already buying uh, food online. Mm-hmm. And then we looked a bit into the story and why is actually nobody buying food online, and that is basically the starting point, how we started Picnic. Okay, okay. And so the story of Picnic goes about four years back, right? So could you maybe elaborate on how did that go? Like, what was the first conversations like and um, where was the start? So the start uh, goes even a little bit further back then, uh, just four years time. Uh, So when we we had the exit from Fredober, um, we basically thought, what could we do afterwards? Mm -hmm. And we needed all a kind of a break. uh, And we went basically on a kind of a journey uh, to find out uh, what comes next. So while for uh, Joris Beckers and Frederick Neuenhaus uh, Mm -hmm. that uh, started Fredober, say, basically uh, looked into the very broad sense of uh, e-commerce, what they could do next. Uh, I started my PhD, uh, mm-hmm. wanted to do uh, some research and did uh, research and formal verification. So finding out how do you build large-scale software systems that actually do what they should do. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I did uh, five years, uh, three years research and I had a lot of fun. Um, practical relevancy is maybe limited, but we had a good time there and a lot of cool papers. <laughs> yeah. And then afterwards, uh, we looked a bit in the e-commerce market and identified um, basically an opportunity in food mm-hmm. because there's uh, basically a very small fraction of the food uh, online while we saw a big opportunity. Mm-hmm. And we identified uh, basically three reasons why nobody has been shopping food online. Yeah. Number one is there have been very high delivery fees. So that means basically uh, the offline variant. So going to physical supermarket is much cheaper than uh, doing it online. So that has been a major blocker. The second one is uh, basically uh, you had to wait for a long time for food. Mm -hmm. So that is not very convenient. And the third one is all the interfaces. So that means how do you shop for food uh, 
has been basically a copy paste from non food to food. But if you think a little bit uh, how food works, yeah. where you buy usually 30 items instead of three items uh, in, in electronics or fashion, then uh, you need to think of a very new interface. So we identified these uh, kind of three reasons, thought about solution, and then uh, that was basically the starting point of Picnic. Oh, okay. That's very interesting. So you have taken up a challenge to take people to do grocery online. Now, so you re recognize the market here. I mean, it's fairly, well, the online market is not saturated, but the offline market is a long-time business, and especially the market leaders such as Jumbo or Albert Hein are on it. And they also have certain, uh, let's say, plans to go online, right? So Albert Hein does deliveries. How did it feel to go against such big giants when you came up with like, the idea and started it off? So the point is, uh, so there's a kind of a blue ocean and a red ocean uh, strategies. So if you look to uh, indeed the entire market of delivering food or let's say providing food to consumers, then uh, there is a kind of a fixed demand. Mm -hmm. There's a fixed amount of population and then everybody eats a kind of a fixed amount on a, on a daily or weekly basis. So in this sense, uh, if you want to win, somebody else needs to lose. Correct. However, if you look a bit more careful, uh, then the market splits up in different kind of verticals. So there's a kind of a brick and mortar traditional mm -hmm. vertical mm -hmm. where there is a lot of competition. So that means if Albert wins, then Jumbo needs to right. lose, etc. Right. While uh, for online, uh, if you're talking only about one or two percent, there's a huge amount of uh, growth opportunity. Mm -hmm. While compared to other online food players, uh, they don't need to lose if you are winning. And that was very attractive for us. And we thought about a formula that is attractive for customers. Mm -hmm. And uh, our formula is very simple. Lowest price, free delivery. Right. So basically a parity to the uh, uh, to the offline variant. So mm -hmm. that means you don't pay more. Uh, you have a very convenient service and we are always on time. And that is something what convinced customers first in Amersfoort, where mm -hmm. we launched, mm -hmm. and then later also in Utrecht, in Almere, and then by now in a little bit more than 80 cities in, in Netherlands. Right. And in fact, in many cities, what we see is that there's actually queues to use your service and people are waiting before... <laughs> the service is actually available for them. Now, speaking of your customer sort of segments, right? So we can, of course, see tech-savvy and non-tech-savvy or Generation X and Y and all that. Who are your customers? And do you also have certain, well, data? Maybe who is the, your oldest customer? Maybe you have certain anecdotes on that. Sure. So uh, maybe let's go one step back. So indeed, we have quite a few uh, uh, queues, or uh, we call this the waiting list. Right. So customers need to, we cannot let customers immediately to the shop. And there's a very simple reason for this. We have simply more demand for the service that we can immediately serve. That's a good place to so be So <laughs> that is actually a very, uh, very nice situation to be in. So uh, if you would let everybody immediately in, then um, basically we would have to dissatisfy some customers mm -hmm. because we can't deliver immediately on so many more customers uh, always yeah. on time with fresh quality. Yeah. So that's the reason why we build up step-by-step step the, uh, uh, the uh, delivery uh, quality. So um, looking into the um, looking into our uh, customer segments, we have started as a service that is focusing on families and that is still our biggest uh, customer segment. So families uh, usually array age range uh, 25, 30 to 50, busy lives, uh, having kids, um, just looking for a convenient service that is uh, also affordable to them. Right. However, on the other hand, uh, we have also a lot of students. Uh, so when we started in Utrecht, we see that oh, this is also a very attractive service for students. And we have also a lot of uh, older customers. Uh, so what we see is, for instance, our oldest customer is uh, 97 years old okay. or 97 and a half. And uh, <laughs> she has an iPad. Uh, she is using the iPad font size 200%, uh, ordering two or three times per week, uh, okay. not just for herself, for also the kids and the grandchildren. 
cards. Wow. And this is a, is a very loyal customer. And this is a convenience that is uh, helping her in her life. Absolutely, because if she has limited mobility, uh, I mean, this could yeah. be an interesting market. And if you can convince them, then uh, that, that's a market in Yes. Yeah. And the reason why this is also interesting is, on the one hand, obviously, it tackles a real issue for, yeah. uh, for elderly people. On the other hand, we were asking ourselves, is this an interesting service and mobile-only service that yeah. can really work for uh, people that have been not growing up Correct. in Generation Sec or millennial yeah. Yeah. type of uh, ubiquitous uh, technology environments? And Correct. what we learned is that this is something which, um, if the service is easy enough to use, if the app yeah. is easy enough to uh, navigate, then uh, this is something that works pretty well. In the beginning, uh, we uh, organized so-called town halls. Mm -hmm. So basically, we asked customers to join us where we introduce the service, where we explain a bit how to use it. Yeah. And this is something where we saw we need to explain a bit uh, how such a service works. So we had in the beginning easily 20, 30, 40% uh, of our customers that have never done any form of e-commerce before. Okay. So then you start to explain uh, not so much of what means navigation, but what is checkout, how Correct. do you pay, what is ideal, right. and how do you actually right. handle, the, how is a payment handled, how is how are your mm. payment details uh, in a secure way stored. Uh, with the payment provider. Interesting. And once you mentioned, let's say your customer said, you mentioned that families is the biggest part. I mean, I guess it also makes logical sense because if it's a family, the average check is also bigger or there's less frequent de deliveries, but bigger deliveries, right? So that would be a logical first step to... to Certainly. Go. So obviously there are differences between a couple, singles and, and right. families right. Uh, in basket size and item yeah. values, etc. Uh, the differences are not that big, mm -hmm. uh, but there are definitely, uh, definitely differences. We're talking about uh, fast-moving consumer goods, so kind Absolutely. of uh, fulfilling basic yeah. needs. Yeah. So therefore, the differences are uh, are uh, not that drastic, but still uh, obviously observable. Interesting. Now, um, so so now it's a very fast-growing market. But what what is where are you headed? Like, where would you feel that as a company that you're satisfied with where you're gone, or what are the growth? plans or vision? So we started with a relatively small team in 2015. Um, basically, the journey started a few years earlier where we built a kind of an MVP and uh, tested the service uh, first in Steel of Mode and then with a public launch in August 2015. And then we br basically built and grew the business from uh, one simple city in, uh, in the, a little bit, um, a few kilometers from Amsterdam to now 80 cities here in Netherlands and uh, launched a year ago also in Germany, where yep. we are now active in, uh, in, in, 10, uh, in 10 cities. In total, we have in Netherlands around uh, 300,000 customers. In Germany, we have uh, around 40,000 customers. Okay. And obviously, one of the main pillars going forward is uh, to grow further, meaning uh, more cities, more customers in Netherlands and Germany and uh, beyond. So this is one of yeah. the pillars. Number two is uh, we are looking also in interesting uh, new business uh, opportunities. Okay. So we have started, uh, as an example, a return logistics pilot uh, okay. with a very simple observation. Um, uh, basically, we always go full to a customer and empty back. Absolutely. And that is uh, something where at some point our CFO said, uh, guys, uh, you have just a 50% utilization of your right. vehicles. Absolutely. Because you're full on yeah. one way and you're empty on the other way. Yeah. So uh, you have, we have only two options. Either you can do the same stuff uh, with half the vehicles mm -hmm. or you uh, basically find out uh, <laughs> yeah. what we do with the other half of, uh, right. of the delivery time. And then we looked a bit in the market and uh, we what we do is a forward logistics. So mm -hmm. that means we... Right deliver from warehouses to customers. Right. Uh, there's an industry which is completely doing the reverse, uh, which is especially in e-commerce important for, yes. for fashion, yeah. where everybody is ordering four or five <laughs> pairs of jeans, uh, sends uh, four back and keeps one. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that is very normal. And this is even uh, encouraged uh, yeah. by making it uh, pretty easy. Uh, companies right. like Wecamp and Zalando are pretty right. big in this. Yeah. And uh, what we uh, started there is helping customers with the return flow. So they can, whenever a picnic a delivery guy or a runner, mm-hmm. as we call it, mm-hmm. is at the door, um, they can give their return uh, products back to us and we bring it back to the, uh, to the retailer. So that gives us, uh, on the one hand, an edge on the uh, utilization of the of the vehicles. On the other hand, it's a nice for the customers um, mm-hmm. because uh, they don't need to go to the postal office. And uh, it's also good for the retailer because they have also a very easy way of uh, handling the return flow. Hmm. Okay, uh, that could actually be very interesting. And in fact, when I did some of my research, you're a very like, KPI-driven company, right? And could you maybe tell me about that a bit and how you're structured and you know how do you strive or for development in the company so um <clears throat> we started uh, very early on to get a few on what are the main drivers of a business and this is uh, especially for such a business with a broad footprint so functional and uh, operational footprint very important yeah. so on the one hand we have the entire e-commerce side where we sell stuff to customers where we need to define the price the assortment etc but we have also the entire operational side where we buy stuff from uh, farmers and from mm-hmm. producers uh, we have a a warehouse operation, or by now five warehouses in Netherlands and one in uh, Germany. And then we have also the entire logistics with 800 cars uh, that are uh, on the street in 80 cities uh, every single day. So then uh, there's a lot of, uh, let's say, data that you need to gather to uh, get a good understanding. So in, the, uh, in 2015 and 16, we basically di- identified and defined uh, the key KPIs mm-hmm. uh, that we want to attract. And then we build up the data infrastructure yeah. to collect uh, the necessary data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in seventeen eighteen, we had basically a data-driven operation uh, where we build uh, weekly reports uh, to understand in which cities uh, are we operating well and which cities uh, should we uh, operate better. And then uh, also understanding why, so what can we do uh, better there. And then um, basically in eighteen, we started to use this kind of data to also uh, feed it back into our systems to mm-hmm. learn mm-hmm. ourselves on how to operate better. So an example, for instance, is the stop times. Um, so if we, in logistics, basically you do two things. Number one is you try to uh, calculate the optimal route yeah. uh, for a vehicle. So from customer one to two and three and four. And then um, in, in a complex uh, logistics system as ours, uh, then you also try to understand and uh, define what is the uh, time that a single stop takes? So at the stop, you need to find a parking spot. You need to go right. to the customer. Right. You need to uh, ring the bell. You need uh, The customer needs to come to the door. Uh, you need to give the groceries. Yeah. You take back bottles, uh, all this kind of stuff. So uh, then we build a kind of a model uh, to predict for which customer, with which driver, with which vehicle, in which street, at which daytime, at which kind of uh, weather conditions, the stop uh, take how long. I and see. that is something what we built in 18, 2018. And now we have a kind of a self-learning system right. where uh, based on every new delivery on a day, uh, we are training the model to, to become even it, more, yeah. uh, becoming ev- uh, even more better, uh, even better on uh, predicting the uh, stop times for customers. And the same we do also for our safety, uh, safety measurements uh, for the vehicle. So how many uh, turns does a, a, a runner take? Uh, which are uh, maybe a little bit more on the borderline speed. And then uh, we give feedback to uh, our runners, uh, which kind of turns he was uh, taking too fast and which ones uh, where he was maybe uh, too slow, etc. So this is a kind of direct feedback that he gets. Okay. Well, this is actually super interesting. And uh, and on this space, I mean, so right now you're sort of optimization of the processes, right? So you also, in our informal discussion, you mentioned about warehousing and how, let's say, that's another space 
there is a lot of space for optimization. What are you doing there? So warehousing basically started uh, first with a uh, third-party system that we uh, that we used in uh, 2015 to 17. At some point, we just realized uh, if we want to really go the next steps in, in, in uh, warehousing, we need to uh, in-house this. Yeah. So uh, have the operation ourselves and have also the uh, entire system side on our side. So we built an own uh, warehouse uh, management system where we do all the kind of the inbound and the outbound yeah. flow uh, and the management of this uh, ourselves. The next step and what we are now working on is basically looking into how can we automate, uh, how can we robotize uh, this kind of uh, warehouse operation. And the way how we look to this is a little bit different than uh, the typical automation industry. What we look into is uh, how can we use our current uh, shoppers, so these are the people that are working in the warehouse, uh, to actually uh, be more productive. So that means to handle more orders in the same time frame. So we are not looking to have less people in the warehouse, but we are looking into more orders getting on a single day uh, out of the warehouse. And uh, there we are looking now in all kind of automation of the inbound, of the outbound, of the picking flow uh, to get um, basically a fully robotized uh, warehouse in place. Okay. And if you look at the supply chain that you have, is it very different from, let's say, what Albert Hein uh, has or... or uh, or is it more or less the same suppliers or same concept? So, um, so the supply chain itself, uh, or any supply chain of, of a retailer, consists of a, a couple of uh, different steps. So, um, we have our own buying network uh, that we are uh, using, uh, which is a di- slightly different one than uh, in the case of Albert Hein. Uh, the warehousing itself is completely tailored to uh, online deliveries in our mm. case, mm-hmm. which is logical because we have we don't have physical stores. We have just an online delivery service. So therefore, we have it really tailored to the, our business case. In the case of uh, classical uh, multi-channel retailers, uh, there you have uh, typically warehouses that uh, have to handle in two, both cases, yeah. the physical warehouses and right. also the, uh, right. the physical stores and uh, also the... Uh, uh, online delivery. So therefore, uh, our warehouses and the warehouse processes uh, look definitely different. So, so where where does the packaging take place? Like, so b- because if I look at Albertine or Multimodalist, or uh, there, they basically take it up mostly in uh, carton boxes or uh, containers to to the shop, and from there, I would assume um, the rest of the sorting happens. But for you, if you have to do individual sorting and uh, collection, where does that happen, and how do, how do you manage that? So basically what happens in our warehouses is that the final order that you get as a customer uh, is put together uh, by an order picker. And what the order picker uh, by itself sees on his device is he sees the consumer order and he goes with his pick car, which is usually collecting uh, orders of a couple of customers, goes through the eyes and he Mm -hmm. goes a little bit uh, zigzag, uh, so goes top uh, up in one direction and then down in the other direction uh, through the eyes and picks then uh, milk, butter, uh, cucumbers and all the kind of the products that the customers have ordered. At the end of this tour, uh, he has basically a picker mm-hmm. where he has for uh, 5, 10, 15 customers the entire order altogether that will be moved to a dispatch frame and the dispatch frame itself uh, will be uh, moved to the truck and then it will be uh, delivered to uh, the hubs where it goes to our electrical vehicles mm-hmm. that deliver the order to the, uh, to the end customer. Right, and how are you dealing with Frozen's, for example? The Frozen's, uh, so basically in, in the logistics there are two concepts. Uh, there is uh, kind of active and uh, passive cooling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what we have been uh, using is basically uh, a system uh, uh, where we have own ice packs in our totes. So we have totes um, 
where we first put ice packs uh, in it, or then uh, the first the products and then uh, ice packs on top of it. Then we have a lid on top of it, mm-hmm. uh, which allows us to actually uh, keep the products uh, frozen or cold enough uh, until the, they are at the customer. Okay. And have you also experimented, if I look at, um, so a similar project has been running in Russia. It's uh, called Utkanos. Maybe you came across them and... Um, They've also experimented with how to deal with their customers. And if they're oftentimes as a consumer, I would be like, okay, I'm going home. I'm still not there or there's traffic, but I would like to have my groceries to prepare my dinner. Hmm. And uh, they've been experimenting with, let's say, having uh, certain uh, boxes or like, you know, post box, but major refrigerated one for for products. Is that something which is also of interest? And especially in big, let's say, you know, uh, buildings where there's a number of big customers there. We have definitely, so we are aware of uh, uh, of those kind of concepts. We have also looked into this. Um, for us, this becomes a real issue uh, if you have a significant no-show rate at mm-hmm. home. So mm-hmm. that means you're trying to deliver to the customer, uh, the customer is not at home. Um, what we have been choosing, uh, we have chosen actually delivery slots, so moments in the day where we deliver to customers, where most customers are at home. Mm-hmm. So that means we deliver between 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. And the, our main customer segment, so families, uh, are usually at home. So we have a no-show rate, which is less than 1%. Oh, wow. For the uh, and, and logistics, so typical postal services have something which is between 15 and 25% Absolutely. no-show. So this is a big, big change for them. Uh, in our case, this is not uh, definitely not one of the bigger ones. Um uh, the services that you describe are actually happen uh, exist both in US and in Russia and uh, also a few Asian uh, uh, countries. Typically, a share um, uh, this is uh, this is a kind of a solution for singles or for couples yeah. that are working a long time. Yeah. On the one hand, uh, number two is uh, it gives for the retailer an option to deliver also during the day. So it basically makes an asynchronous right. uh, delivery um, possible where mm-hmm. the customer doesn't need to be at home and you can still deliver to the customer. Right. Yeah, that makes sense because in this case, so you have all your 800 cars waiting till 4 p.m. or yeah. a lot of them there, right? So that's also the capacity. We have we have, we have tried ourselves a one pilot in the, in the past. This was, uh, I believe, 15 or 16 where we tried this with kindergarten. So our... Uh, our customer segment uh, with busy families um, uh, is basically has one spot uh, where you certainly will be at at some point if you have a kid in the kindergarten then uh, you bring it in the morning and uh, you usually pick it up in the evening so in this case uh, we actually uh, talked to a couple of kindergarten uh, where we wanted to have also kind of boxes uh, to store uh, the products here we had a pilot, um, didn't get uh, too, uh, too enthusiastic uh, customer feedback. people are more happy to so. see their kids than their grocery bag. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, kind of. So, and, and in this case, in this case uh, it was uh, simply not encouraging enough to, uh, to move forward with this idea. Okay, interesting. Now, if we look at um, innovation or sort of um, the customer side of things, and interfacing is an interesting one, right? So um, the traditionally, I think, uh, first of all, do you have a data on how many of your customers are mobile and how many of them are desktop or do you even have a desktop version or so we have um we have actually only a mobile only uh we are we are mobile only shop so that means uh, there's a mobile app and yep. you download this for ios and android and then you can order there to be frank we experimented a little bit early on um, also with uh, with a web app but mm-hmm. this is something which 
uh, became a maintenance uh, a maintenance challenge, and uh, we simply uh, didn't didn't move forward uh, with this. What we see now is even for businesses, so mm-hmm. uh, which are ordering uh, larger quantities, uh, mobile or tablets are uh, definitely well uh, working right. very well. And how do you see that space? Because of course, there's a lot of talk of voice, and you know, some more and more devices at home. Is voice in a space or? But then at the same time, are you going to have a list? Nobody has a list of 30 things in my mind. I need to see it before I can yeah. order it. How are you talking about that? So voice itself for e-commerce is um, is certainly interesting. Uh, the biggest challenge that you have with voice is more an interface challenge, not so much a technology challenge. Yeah. Um, just think a bit about if you have an assortment of a couple of thousand products, uh, you search for something, you still have a sub-selection of a couple of hundred uh, products, and then uh, you try to uh, select out of those. With a mobile, uh, you can simply scroll through it. Yeah. Uh, with voice, uh, listening to 100 options and then making picking one or two out of those, that's not handy. Um, there is definitely ideas how you can make it. You, you can make a reverse selection uh, where you get a proposal and you just oh, confirm or not so confirm. Conversational, there are many, yeah. Exactly. So this is called conversational uh, interfaces. This is basically the trend how uh, voice interfaces are uh, developing. Um, we had a pilot and we have not uh, put it to a large-scale production simply because um, the adoption currently, uh, at least on the Dutch and the German market, is not uh, on this level right. where it makes a lot of and sense And you have to do it in three languages, I assume, English, Dutch, German. So. Yeah, the language is one, one of the challenges, but the bigger challenge is that there is no proper uh, interface solution. So mm-hmm. we are working, uh, certainly in, in, in the Picnic Labs, we are looking uh, into this and we are working on... Uh, let's say, possible solutions and possible ideas. Mm-hmm. But for now, this is not a, not the biggest uh, idea that we are pursuing. Okay. And um, so also, I mean, of course, there's like, you know, at, at one point, you would know so much about the customer, but assumingly, you could already deliver without the order. Mm-hmm. Is that, let's say, in your agenda? And maybe when could that be the case? Or would it be the case? The question is, um, do you want to, make any or do you want to do uh, everything what is possible so what i mean with this is uh, even if it would be possible would it be interesting and accepted by the by the customer so we have uh, certainly also looked into uh, into options like a pre-feeding basket or even a delivering uh, of the items that you know for sure that the customer uh, will buy. forgotten, uh, maybe. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So so in this sense, what, what we learned is uh, are basically uh, two things. Number one is um, with an, a business like uh, food, let's say in the food industry, you have a very repetitive behavior. Yeah. Customers correct, are buying correct. between 60 and 80% a week or week, roughly the same stuff. That's number one. Number two is customers want to still make the choice. <laughs> so there is, if you look to a customer satisfaction, yeah. even if customers, um, even if you if you know upfront what products customers would buy, uh, giving them still the choice and making allowing them to make the choice mm-hmm. gives them also a, a kind of a freedom uh, that, they, that they're looking for. This is one thing. The other thing is, uh, if the, if customers would be ready uh, for this kind of uh, auto delivery to uh, to their homes, then this is certainly something what we um, what we would uh, look into. But for the time being, we don't see uh, the market for this. Mm. And it's an interesting transition to actually the question of ethics, and because I mean, if you look at all major scale ups or startups of your type, or as well as uh, let's say in the industry is going more data driven. And at certain points, organizations get to know more about the individuals than the individuals themselves. 
uh, where is sort of uh, in your mind, like where are the ethical boundaries or as a company, how do you go about it? So this is this is something what, especially with the growing size of the business, the, the growing impact that we have to consumers and the growing, let's say, possibilities, simply because we have uh, access to more data. This is something what we take very, very serious. And uh, if you look to, for instance, and data and privacy, data collection, and what do we do with data, uh, we have a very simple principle. Uh, we the data that we have on our side, we collect only data that help us to provide a better service to customers. Number one and number two, we use only single user data. So that means data that we have about you. Mm-hmm. you ha- whenever we can use this to provide you a better service, then we use it. But uh, we will not use it um, beyond that. That is the basic uh, principles that we apply. Uh, going forward, uh, we see definitely possibilities to improve further, for instance, uh, things like ranking and recommendation, uh, providing uh, more tailored packages uh, to the consumers. But we are very careful on uh, going uh, going too fast with this, uh, simply because um, what is known in the industry of, uh, of for instance, web search or uh, knowledge discovery uh, this is filter bubble effect. So that means if you're actually, if you're too good in your recommendations, then you don't see anything uh, outside mm-hmm. of your, yep. let's say, your actual preferences any longer. We don't want to push consumers into uh, into this kind of bubble. So that's the reason why we uh, why we are very careful on right. uh, moving too fast with this. Yeah, Because you go from prediction to prescription almost, right? So kind of, yes. And at one point, yeah. people lose the choice. And yeah, that, that's an interesting one. Now, uh, let's say stepping aside, maybe on a more personal uh, note. Now, uh, you've seen this industry grow. And what what are the challenges around, let's say, global challenges that concern you and you would be interested to, let's say, work on or try to improve the situation that we have? I think the most exciting challenge that we are now living in, especially in the e-commerce industry, is the following. E-commerce in general, uh, both food and non-food, is growing massively. Yeah. However, delivery networks are simply not growing fast enough. And what we see is uh, they are growing, but the kind of the inner city city logistical problems that are arising with this, all kind of traffic from delivery cars you see in the city, are getting so massive that with this kind of growth, just extrapolating of the growth that we have now, we are ending up in a pretty big disaster in, uh, in a couple of years' time. So therefore... The, the industry needs to focus more on innovating on the logistical mm-hmm. side. So mm-hmm. how do we actually uh, make smart logistics combining uh, for, uh, the deliveries from different kind of retailers into maybe one logistical system uh, instead of uh, having 10, or, uh, 10, 15, 20 delivery cars uh, going through the Krachten in Amsterdam and uh, making the city that is anyway hard to navigate, uh, right. even harder to navigate. Right, right. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's true. And uh, so far, it's very much individual, right? But there should be some sort of association where people come together, I guess. But Yes. And that is, that is something what we, for instance, with our system, uh, where we uh, have uh, built basically a logistical system, we call this the bus uh, delivery model, mm-hmm. uh, are already making a contribution um, by having actually an optimal route, uh, mm-hmm. which has... Uh, significant shorter than the normal delivery routes that uh, you get with a taxi type of delivery model where you give uh, random uh, delivery moments. So this is one of the contributions, but there is much, much more potential. What what we can certainly see is that the current logistical capabilities will not be, or the current logistical system will not be able to grow in the mm-hmm. same speed as e-commerce will grow. 
And there is a really an, an, an task and, and demand for finding a proper solution uh, to this kind of solutions. And we will see this especially in, in bigger and, uh, let's say, medium-sized uh, cities right, uh, right. to become a huge issue. Right, and that's also where e-commerce is concentrated, right? So, so that that's interesting. Now, um, now basically, okay, a bit more on your interest or what do you look out for? What kind of books do you read? Do you have any book recommendations that, let's say, you would like to share at this point? Well, there are many, many books that uh, are uh, these days uh, written and that are pretty exciting. So I'm, I'm reading uh, pretty much across uh, all kind of uh, books. So there's a, ni- a nice book about a brave uh, called Brave Work and uh, many other uh, books that are basically looking into how does work uh, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0 look like in, in a couple of years at uh, a time. Uh, I'm also pretty excited about everything what uh, goes beyond the AI hype, mm-hmm. um, where people are looking into what does it mean if you combine artificial intelligence or kind of a smart uh, predictions with uh, human intelligence. So yeah. basically, uh, the, what how we call this and how we see this in Picnic is, we call this augmented uh, yeah. intelligence, yeah. where we see basically said human intelligence gets complemented uh, with artificial intelligence. And that is the main thing uh, that uh, that we see as a kind of a trend uh, going forward. And that's something I'm uh, reading a lot about. So that, that's actually a very interesting point because I think that's the sweet spot that we want to achieve. Uh, and uh, that's sort of the good side of singularity, hopefully, where we can get. But at the same time, there's a lot of concerns on the other side where sort of, well, we potentially as a species could get enslaved. Now, interestingly, if I say, um, share my observation, right, if you look at Industrial Revolution, it went after our one of the capabilities, which is our physical capabilities. Now, this revolution is going after our second cap- capability, which is our, let's say, IQ. What is left for humans? Like, if we, if we were have to make an, well, probably not an extrapolation because we don't have <laughs> enough data, but just uh, maybe more of an educated guess, how do you see humans and uh, machines interacting? And do you see that we should keep certain things in mind? Is progress always better? Or is there some kind of ethical boundaries that we should develop before we yeah. go there? Uh, so this is this is a kind of a debate that is going on uh, since, since a couple of uh, years. And uh, different people have certainly different uh, different answers to this. Uh, so the Alibaba the direction is then going more in the emotional intelligence direction. Right. Um, I don't have a really strong view on this, but there is one important observation um, that, that we should be all aware while um, the, let's say, the industrial uh, um, revolution was tackling a problem that could be at its full span and be basically mechanized mm-hmm. and uh, taken over by by machines, um, the current cognitive uh, revolution that is happening uh, with AI is something where we will see some cognitive capabilities, very likely, uh, not to be taken over by machines. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this and the observations here is that if you're talking about cognitive capabilities, this is not, uh, let's say, one dimension. So this kind of, uh, the, the notion of superhuman intelligence assumes that there's a kind of a linear spectrum. Yeah. Currently, uh, machines are kind yeah. of uh, below human intelligence. At some point, they yeah. are beyond that. Right. But uh, it is more, it is definitely a multidimensional uh, problem where there will be a couple of capabilities where machines will be uh, certainly way, way better uh, than humans. And that is happening m- more often now. And that's where people are getting uh, getting scared. 
But uh, you should be aware that this is, has happened already uh, for the last uh, 30, 50, 70 years. Yeah. And most people did not realize it. So whenever uh, in the 50s the first calculators came uh, on the market, then uh, just a simple a simple math, uh, yeah. every calculator is better. So you Correct. could uh, calculate uh, 73 times 99 and every calculator is faster than, yeah. uh, than, than a human. But somehow uh, we didn't realize it as a, a big uh, threat. And now there's a few more capabilities, but I'm pretty uh, optimistic that there will uh, be still kind of cognitive tasks, especially yeah. when it combined with creative tasks that uh, will, will remain uh, very human. And then the question is more, how do we draw a boundary line? Not so much drawing a boundary between uh, what a machine should do and what uh, we should do, but it's more about uh, how do we combine both capabilities? How right. do we make the best out of both? And I think in the midst of that is, again, uh, awareness and education. I think they're uh, so still in the schooling and higher education, this conversation is lacking, right? So the, the, I think it's foundationally has to go back there and we have to have this discussion at a very early age. It's like, hey, we have a new construct that we have to take into account and we have to grow up with it. So now, uh, just for the and sake this of is time. Maybe, maybe one, one last remark. I think this is a very, very important remark. The, the conceptual or the fundamental flaw of the educational system is that you educate for a profession. It's even yeah. called like this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. While um, most professions will simply no longer exist in a couple of years' time. So uh, whatever kind of uh, study you take, uh, it is pretty clear that half of the jobs that we do now will not exist in, in 20 years. If you take this as your uh, a driver for education, uh, then you need to think much more con conceptually, much very different Correct. about what education uh, may mean. Correct. And yes, just a new, it's just a new obligation. It doesn't yeah. make, I'm, I'm not going in the Elon Musk direction where you say, well, education is nonsense. <laughs> it's more important that education should be something very different. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge opportunity. So therefore, uh, universities should just think about what is education 4.0 or whatever kind of uh, right. number <laughs> we are now. <laughs> correct, uh, correct. Is, yeah. is in, in, in 2020. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, indeed, indeed. And most of the jobs are, yeah, you're right. And I mean, we train people for the past not for the future, and uh, having experience working in a university, I definitely recognize the challenges that we face. And unfortunately, what we ha don't have in the space of education is, uh, let's say, an emergent player that is going to challenge things as of now, which is what we discussed. MOOCs was one move, got people thinking, but then universities adopt adopted them. But uh, I think what universities do is, it's not just education, but it's also the ecosystem. Right, And that ecosystem, I think, on its own has its value, but the learning and teaching will significantly change. So why do we need 100 teachers to teach you math if now you can get the best teacher in the world who you can listen to online? Then you don't need the same thing to be retaught in the same way to others, but probably move to more interpersonal and communication and all sorts of Absolutely. soft skills. And, and why like do that. most people go five years um, in, in their early 20s uh, to university? And then um, most people don't see a university from inside again afterwards. Yeah, uh, yeah. that is completely, completely, uh, completely wrong. And if they do some university or executive education, yeah. then it's usually not really what is classically what is university education. What you no, would call university absolutely. Education. I mean, yeah. that's that's the irony of the situation yeah. and, uh, <laughs> that we train the best people, but we don't uh, train ourselves to keep up with time. Uh, good and. Maybe just uh, we end on, uh, let's say, certain um, guidance or so you see the youth, the way it is developing. Maybe you could share some of the best advice that you have received that you would like to share with the audience on that. 
There are probably uh, three things that uh, that helped me a bit on uh, on my journey. So the first thing is, whenever you join uh, a venture, you should always work in the uh, in the core of of the venture. Let me give you an example uh, why I'm saying this is. So um, I did an MBA and I did um, basically uh, and I did a PhD in computer science. And I had also interest to do something with my MBA. Uh, so I was interested in finance and, uh, and and accounting. But if you are in a tech venture. You simply should work on the tech side. You should not uh, do. A, uh, you should, if you do something with finance and accounting, it should be more just the fundraising side, which is very close to tech. But everything else, uh, you should not uh, be. Uh, well, it, it doesn't bring you too far if you mm-hmm. if you put too much energy in this. Number one. Number two. Um, uh, I think you should always stay brave and looking for uh, for opportunities. Uh, there is so much more to come, and especially in the in the early years where I don't have. To lose too much, uh, right. just try as much as uh, possible. Um, uh, don't go uh, the safe route. There's enough time in life uh, that you can go the safe route. Uh, you certainly should uh, go for for more the adventures. And the third thing is uh, you are the type of people that surround you. So yeah. that means uh, look for people that challenge you, uh, that uh, bring you forward, uh, that give you also something uh, to you, that don't look also for um, what you would call uh, usually... A cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So the people that give you a kind of a new input uh, around uh, your way of thinking. And then uh, just stay open of whatever may come your way. Good. I think on that note, I think it's a good way to uh, finish this episode. So Daniel, thank you very much for your time and very insightful thoughts. And yeah, so yeah. thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Guys, have a good time. <laughs> <laughs>